1 Peter 1 verse 6 in this you rejoice even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials in this you rejoice even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials what do you think about that sentence? It's got two things put together that we don't normally put together. It's got rejoicing and trials, doesn't it? Joy and suffering. I want to ask you today as we begin uh, this series on 1 Peter and this particular talk, how do you respond to the various trials of your life? How do you respond to the various trials of your life? There's no doubt that life can be trying at times. There's, all those, there's those small annoyances in life, isn't there? Uh, why is it that it's only when you're in a hurry that you can't find your keys or that the bus is running really late? Why is that about life? And there's those seasons of busyness, lots of demands. You feel that your life is a little bit, just a little bit out of control, maybe week seven or eight of a semester even, perhaps. There's the lab report due. There's a 4,000 word essay or even worse, a 40,000 word thesis around the corner. There's three 21sts to go through this Saturday night, not to mention the EU prom, which you must go through. (laughs) And your mum's hassling you about not being home enough. Those seasons where life just feels a little bit out of control. And relationships can be so wearing, can't they? Relationships. That woman or man of your dreams just doesn't seem to know you're even alive. Sad, isn't it? Don't even know you exist. There's those hurts and misunderstandings between friends. The family fights. It may be that you feel that no one knows you exist. It's a well-researched, profound truth. You ready for it? Life is messy. Put it in technical terms. Life is messy. There are many little trials to life and they add up. Perhaps it's more than just messy for you though. Because from time to time stuff happens which really does knock the wind out of our sails. We're brought face to face with some of the atrocities which humans seem capable of in our world. Russia, Sudan... There's serious illness for ourselves or our loved ones, financial worries, perhaps even deep and bitter relationship problems in our families which have left us feeling, well, helpless and unloved. The death of loved ones. These are all inevitable things in life. It's more than messy, it's downright sad. Stuff happens which makes you angry. Stuff happens which stretches you to to the limits of your ability to cope. That will happen. It's inevitable. I want to ask you today, how do you respond to life's trials? The question, notice, is not how can you avoid them? How do you avoid them? That's not the question. The question is how are you going to handle them when they happen? What is your default position? your default response to trials in life. 
Perhaps you're a whinger. Nothing's ever right. I can't change it, but boy, someone's going to pay. You're a whinger. Maybe you're a controller, desperately trying to take, take control of life to make it easier or more predictable, never taking risks, never committing. Are you a controller? Maybe you're an anaesthetizer, an anaesthetizer, looking for the next rush or experience which will help you forget what's going on, anaesthetizing yourself against the awful reality that life may be meaningless and that we are just victims of blind chance. Maybe you're an anaesthetizer. And what are Christians? How do they respond? Well, Christians are certainly not immune to the mess of life. In a way, it becomes more complex for Christians. You see, Christians believe in a good personal God who created the universe with purpose and order. Christians believe that God has acted decisively in Jesus Christ to clean up the mess that the world is in. Christians believe that God has made promises to those who entrust themselves to them as their Lord. Promises to work for their good. And in the mess, new questions come up. In what way exactly is God in control? What is his purpose? When will he clean up this mess? In what way is this difficult thing for my good? If you're not a Christian here today, what sense do you make of the trials of life? How does your view of the world or belief system cope with the trials of life? Are they illusions? Are they the arbitrary choice of some cosmic force? Is it blind, merciless chance? How does your worldview cope with the trials of life? In 1 Peter 1 the writer says, In this you rejoice, even if for now, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials. Joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials. How can he say that? What is the this in that sentence that gives any coherence to the statement in this you rejoice even though you're going through various trials? And today we're going to look at chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 which starts to bring some answers to those questions. How can he say that? What is the this that he's talking about? Now as we uh, start on this letter it's, it's an important thing to know who it's from and who it's to. It's a letter. This is one of those times where it's okay to read somebody else's mail, okay? So we're looking over their shoulder or reading a letter from somebody to another group of people. And we find in the first couple of verses who it's from and who it's to. 1 Peter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father, and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Well, it is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is one of the original disciples of Jesus. This is a serious Christian document from the first century that we're reading here. Peter was an eyewitness and a follower of Christ. And every now and then in the, in the letters we go through, you'll notice echoes of things that Jesus said and did which come through and add authenticity to this material. 
And he writes, this apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to a group described as the exiles of the dispersion. You may have um, scattered strangers or something like that in your translation. It's literally exiles of the dispersion. They're exiles. They're living away from home. They're living as temporary strangers in another land. That's how Peter describes these people he writes to. They're scattered, dispersed, uh, all around modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as it was then. I guess our equivalent might be, could be something like tourists, temporary strangers in a, in a different land. You know, pick a tourist. You know, they dress differently. They've got the camera around their, their neck. They've usually got a funny hat. There's, a, there's an accent when you talk to them. Uh, you pick a tourist. That describes, that probably captures the out-of-placeness of these, these people that Peter writes to. They're, Australia, they're temporary strangers in another land. But it doesn't quite capture the sense of exile, does it, tourists? Perhaps asylum seekers comes closer to that sense. Now, these people aren't in detention centres in Asia Minor, but there is a sense in which they don't fit in and they've been brought there to this situation by circumstances outside their control. There is that sense of it. It's, it's not a willing dwelling in a strange land, particularly. And that word scattered, or is literally this diaspora. And that was a word commonly used to describe Jewish people scattered throughout the ancient world, outside of their homeland. So the Jews had their homeland in uh, Israel, around Jerusalem there. And the word exile to this group of people, which may well be Christian Jews, those Jews who converted to Christianity, they're described as this dispersion of Jews around the ancient world, but that word exile would have been even more poignant for them because for them their homeland was really important. And that word exile will bring to mind for them a time in their history in which they were away from their homeland from Jerusalem where the temple was away from the focus of God's blessing the great exile capital E in their history and to call them exiles of the diaspora is to suggest they are not in a particularly happy situation this group of people that Peter writes to and sure enough as you go through the letter and I've got some verses there which we'll just quickly have a look at just skim over I'm not going to explain we'll get to them in other parts of the at the other two talks. But so these people are not particularly happy, so as I read out earlier, they are people who are suffering various trials. Uh, 2 verse 11 to 12. He calls them again, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles. He uses that word again, to abstain from the desire of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles or among the nations, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. They're being maligned as evildoers by those around. They don't fit in. They've been given a hard time for being different. Or 3, 14 to 15. He says, But even if you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. They're in an intimidating situation. They may even be being brought to the courts to try to be asked to give an account for why they're Christian. This is not easy for these Christians. And 4.12, it talks about suffering. 4.12, 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something was strange were happening to you. You get the picture? When he calls them exiles, scattered exiles, he's bringing to mind a whole lot of stuff, but particularly he's bringing out that these are... These people are under pressure from those around. They're in a strange land. They don't fit in and they're really paying the cost for it. They're clearly Christians in verse 2, in the second half of verse 1. They received a faith, uh, sorry, verse 1. They've been chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, which is kind of a really dense statement so you've been Christians and God has been involved in making you Christians he set you apart he's already setting up the grounds for what he's going to say to them he's saying you're in this position because of what God has done Father, Son and Holy Spirit all that God has been involved in you being Christian and they're taking the cost for it Right at the end of the letter Peter tells us why he's writing to them why is he writing to these people in this difficult situation 1 Peter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's writing to encourage them to stand fast in the true grace of God. And he's going to, in this letter, fill out, fill out that statement. What is this true grace of God? How do you stand fast in it? In the part of the letter we're going to focus on today, which is chapter 1, Peter unfolds the this of that statement, in this you rejoice. The this which enables joy in the midst of trials. And it's got two parts. The this, and you see that on your outline. The first part is, Peter lays out for them where they are headed. Where they are headed. The second part is how they're going to get there. Where they're headed, how they're going to get there. To know that is to enable joy in the midst of trials. To know where you're headed, and how are you going to get there? And so the letter begins with Peter lifting his reader's vision to the future, where you're headed. He ends there as well, as we'll see later. Now, a confident vision of the future makes all the difference in trials, when you think about it. It's true in life, isn't it? Conversely, a lack of any sense of future is deeply demotivating in the, in the midst of difficulty. Then when you had that experience of being lost. I have. When, you, when you're lost, you have that sense of lot, being lost and having no idea which direction is which. It's a sinking feeling, isn't it? So I have no idea which... I, I have no bearings to know which way to go. A lack of sense of future is deeply demotivating in the face of difficulty. But hope, knowing where you're headed... Well, that's a powerful, motivating force. It's actually true of sickness in a measurable way. There's a, a survey in America of oncologists. Uh, there was, they um, surveyed 649. That's doctors who deal with cancer. 649 of them offered their opinions on the, the importance of various psychological factors in fighting cancer. More than 90% of them said they attach the highest value to the attitudes of hope and of optimism. Hope is a powerful motivating force. But what Peter writes about here is actually more than just uh, 
trying to be optimistic about your situation or thinking positively in the midst of your situation. He writes about something more radical than that. He writes about a new birth into a living hope. So in chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy for you receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we'll just unpack that. What is it that they've got? What's he draw their attention to? How does he lift his, their vision to the future? The first thing he reminds them is that they've been born again. They've been given new birth. Now, he tells them that they have this new, whole new situation, a new birth, which is puzzling when you think about it. It's a metaphor, obviously. There's so much that is defined about you at your birth. Your name, your family, where you live, and along with that, so much of what you'll be like. Your looks, whether you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom or the top of the tube, your values, it's all sorts of things that come about through your birth. It's a very significant event in your life. I think one of the gold medalists from Australia said, this is the second most significant event in my life after my birth. It's, it's, it defines you, this idea of birth. And to describe yourself as born again is to talk about a life-defining new start, a new beginning. Peter wasn't the first one to use that metaphor of birth to describe becoming a Christian. Jesus himself used it when he talked to a man called Nicodemus about being born again, a religious leader who was just puzzled by Jesus and wanted to know more. And Jesus talked to him about what you need is to be born from above. You need a new birth to enter this kingdom that I'm bringing in. To come into the realm of God's rule to be in relationship with him, a fundamental change needs to take place. They need, humans need God to take the initiative to bring them alive to himself, to give them new birth. And this is what has happened to these new Christians. They've been given new birth, a new start in relation to God, a new identity as God's children. And that brings with it a new future. That finds a whole lot about their future, this new birth. It's described as a living hope, an untouchable inheritance and a salvation to be revealed. A living hope. Hope is that confidence of a good future which you don't have or see yet. We've had a talk on hope a couple of weeks ago which has filled that out. It's not hope in the sense of unsure. You know, I, well, last week I hoped that the Swans would win the Premiership. Uh, but, uh, that was a vain wish, obviously. It's not that kind of hope. 
I hope my team wins or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's a, he describes it as a living boat, a, a, a hope, a life-enriching hope, a vital hope, something that is real and sure, a confidence which affects life now. And again, as you go through the book, you see how this hope kind of forms a skeleton of 1 Peter, this letter. The hope is undergirding a lot of what he says and he fills out what it is to have a living hope. In a way, the rest of the book does that. So a hope will affect your whole demeanour in in trials. There will be rejoicing in chapter 1. 5, 6 to 10, there will be a humble entrusting of oneself to God. That's what this this hope brings about. It changes behaviour. 1, 13, therefore, given in light of this hope, be disciplined, be prepared, set your minds on living for God and being holy. It changes the whole stance towards enemies, which these people are facing. They're maligning them. They're they're, uh, intimidating. And Peter wants to say to them, no, instead of fearful self-defence, you will live good lives among them because you know of this hope. You have this future. It affects everything. It's a living hope. In a way, the next two talks will fill out the way which is living. uh, I've worked with the postgrads and from time to time uh, they finish. Seems postgrads never finish, but from time to time they do, believe it, is you're doing that. Um, it's amazing the difference between those postgrads who have a job lined up for the next year. It's amazing the difference that their last that makes to their last six months. It's a long slot slot doing a PhD, it really is. And those last six months or twelve months are hard because you're writing and you're trying to put it all down. There's a world of difference with somebody who has a sense of their future. They've got something to work towards. They actually need their PhD to get the job, but they've been, they've been accepted. They say, if you get your PhD, you've got the job. A whole demeanour and approach to it changes. They're motivated. They have a living hope that affects how they do things now. That's the kind of hope, that's the kind of confidence in the future that Peter says these people have been born into. He also describes their future as an untouchable inheritance. This is what, if you like, this adds content. What is it in the future that you hope for? What, what, what is it? It's an untouchable inheritance. Again, he's maintaining this metaphor of birth. An inheritance is something you usually come into by birth. When you have new birth, you inherit. It's not something that you earn, though. It's something that is yours by birth. And Peter says they have this inheritance. And notice how he describes it. You think, listen to this, see if you think he's making a point. You've been given your birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Imperishable. He's making thought imperishable, untouched by death, undefiled. It has no evil involved with it. Unfading, it's unaffected by time. It's guarded, it's kept, it's safe. He's emphasising that this inheritance is sure. It's not going to fade away, it's not going to get stolen. And it's been guaranteed by none other than God. It's like the Christmas present. You may have already done that with the, with the uh, you know, winter sales or summer sales from last year. You go and buy a Christmas present. Maybe none of you are that organised. 
Do you, you see the perfect thing that's really cheap? So you buy it. Or it says, That'd be great for so and so. And you kind of, so if you really are, you may even wrap it six months in advance and put it up on top of the cupboard. So ready for Christmas. It's kind of saying it's like that, this inheritance. It's, it's, it's there, it's kept for you, it's, it's sure. It's not going to fade away, unlike human inheritance, earthly inheritances. You've got your money, it's super funds. The last five years have been very disappointing. The money seems to have gone down, not up, most of the time. Um, but it's not like that. This is an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, guarded inheritance. And lastly, he describes it as a salvation to be revealed. They will be saved, verses 5 to 9. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials. And he says, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. There will be this great salvation of their souls in all its fullness, a full salvation which brings indescribable, over-the-top kind of joy. It's, a, it's to be revealed, this salvation. There's a time when it will be public, not hidden in future like it is now. And we'll look at that revelation coincides with another revelation as we'll look in a minute. But notice how it's talked about. This salvation involves praise and glory and honour. It involves seeing the one whom you love, but don't see now, seeing him face to face. That kind of salvation. They entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. And Peter's described, there's this day when you will see them face to face. The one you love now but can't see. This glorious reason, the salvation, nothing less than salvation of your soul, salvation of your whole self. That's their future. That's where they're headed. It's brilliant. It brings indescribable joy. Glorious joy. It's something that's already happening. They're already heading towards it. They're receiving it now as they go through these trials. I guess the question is, um, that sounds all very brilliant, but isn't this just a Christian belief about the future? Now, Christians have one view about the future, this glorious, great thing, and others will have another view about the Christian with this rod in the ground. Or Nothing happens in the long-term future. What makes this any different from positive thinking? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's almost too good to be true. But what, what makes it different to dreaming up some sort of positive future which helps you to cope now? Of tricking yourself that it'll be all right in the end, she'll be right. The fact is, the trials are now, the suffering is now. We need to hear the other half of Peter's this, in this you rejoice, which enables rejoicing. He's got where you're headed, but he makes it very clear how they will get there. That's the important part of the equation. How will you get there? There's three, three things he identifies. One is by God's mercy and power. 
It's by God's great mercy. And all the way through, as I read that, it's got little indications of how they will get there. It's by God's great mercy they've been given a new birth. It's by his power that the inheritance is kept safe. God has brought them into this glorious new birth and he will see it through to their inheritance. It's by God's mercy and power, the faithful God, the one who made the universe, the one who has purposes for his world and for us. That's the one who's ensuring and guaranteeing this future, the faithful God. But more importantly, I think, how is that mercy and power of God displayed? How do you know that he's like that? You know it in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have, you see, we have this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through Jesus resurrected. Jesus' resurrection has made this new birth possible. In a way, his resurrection was a rebirth, a re-enlightening. In his death, he carried the sin of humanity. In his, res- in his resurrection, God vindicated him and gave him a future as the rule of the world. But Jesus' resurrection also points to his final triumph. And that's how it's linked to this hope, this living hope. When Jesus is raised, he is raised to be Lord of all. And a day is set when he will return to put God's world right. As the passage says, there will be a day when Jesus is revealed as Lord. A revelation of the truth about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. A day when he will complete his victory over sin and over death and clean up his world. That's what the resurrection points to. That's why it's so intrinsically linked to this living hope. It's the resurrection of Jesus that says this hope is true and sure. Jesus will be revealed and that's when our inheritance, that's when our salvation will be finalised and complete. You've got a little diagram there, which I guess just puts in simple terms kind of Peter's scheme, how he's thinking about the world. We're there in the middle, the uh, funny little man, or whatever it is. You see the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus raised. That top line represents the reality of Jesus' place now. He is Lord of all now through his resurrection. We're down here on the bottom line there. That's still a, uh, it's a, it's a reality for us, but it's an unseen one. But there is a day when Jesus will be revealed that this passage points to. That's a key point. There's a day when Jesus will be revealed. When who he is will be known by all. When that salvation will be complete and received in full. When, he's in, when we receive our inheritance. It's all linked to the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. It's by Jesus' resurrection that we have this living hope. And finally, it's through the testing, through faith refinement. That's how you get there. You see that section in verse uh, 7, the second half of verse 6 and 7? Even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The trials themselves have an effect on Peter's writing is what he's saying they have a, have a purpose they test faith's genuineness the pathway through to this 
receiving of the inheritance and salvation is through these trials. These are not our aberration. These are not strange. These are part of the whole process of getting there. They shape us. I've already mentioned how the pressures of life can actually bring us to a point of crisis. Is God in control? Does he have good purposes? Are his promises trustworthy? They test us. They bring us to this point of saying, what do I know and believe about God? Is he faithful? And in this passage, genuine faith is likened to precious gold whose preciousness is actually refined and revealed in fires. All the dross and the rubbish is burnt away. You get the pure stuff in that sense. And similarly, trials have that effect on faith, on our trust in God. If faith is not genuine, it will show up when things don't go well. Or more positively, you could say that trials actually strengthen faith. They have a way of throwing you onto God's care and not your own limited resources. They help to remind you of the unreliability of other things you might trust in for your future. This thing that happened to a friend of mine was that he lost most of his super to a shonky uh, investment system. This shonky investment dealer. It looked all, all above board. He, he actually invested his money for good things. It wasn't all greed. He wanted to put it in wise ways where he could support others and be generous with it. So it wasn't all for himself. But he lost it all. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can I say, he's a different man today through that experience. There was a part of him that found all his security in his material possessions. He was a Christian, but he would say today, he's thankful for that. It was awfully painful at the time. It's made him a different man. He now is totally reliant on God. God has kept providing for him. He wasn't destitute or anything. But it helped him realise how important that stuff was to him. It refined faith. And that's the pathway to getting this inheritance. There's no secret path around it to avoid it. Trials refine faith. That's how we'll get there. Where are you headed? This great hope of the future. An untouchable inheritance. A brilliant, complete salvation where we see the one we love now face to face in a way we don't now. And you'll get there by God's power and mercy. you get there by through Jesus' resurrection and return. That's how you know you'll get there. That's what guarantees it. And through faith refinement. What's this got to do with us in Sydney in 2004? We actually do face trials which come uh, directly from being Christians, like those that Peter wrote to. When you think about it, it may not be as fiery as it was for those people around scattered around Asia Minor, but sometimes our difference as Christians will be uncomfortable as it becomes clear just how different we are. You see, sometimes we won't join in the ways of life that are considered normal and maybe even healthy by those around us. It'll put us out of step. In particular, I think, more and more, our declaration that Jesus is uniquely Lord through his resurrection and that he is the only way to God 
our declaration of that as Christians puts us way out of step with many around us. And that in itself will generate heat for us from time to time. People find that deeply offensive. But when we talk about religion, when we talk about our faith, we're talking about truth. We're not just talking about opinion. However, I don't want to discount other difficulties which come from living in a fallen world. This has a word to say to those as well. Just because they're not explicitly because you're Christian like those faced by the original recipients of this letter, it doesn't mean they aren't addressed by what Peter writes. You see, what makes a trial a trial is its potential effect on you. It has potential to cause you to doubt God's goodness, to go wobbly on him. It's a faith-testing trial which needs similar encouragement to stand firm in the grace of God, whether it be the messiness of life, the out-of-controlness of life, or the big things of death and sickness and conflict. They all have potential to kind of send us wobbly on God. What makes a trial a trial is its potential effect, the point of crisis that brings you to. Is God trustworthy or is he not? And this part of God's word, from 1 Peter 1, encourages us to perseverance and to difference. Whether it be trials of being a Christian or trials from living in a fallen world, Peter's saying to us today, persevere and be different. If you're a Christian here today, this passage lays out clearly where, where you're going and how you'll get there. It places us in the biggest picture of all, God's future for his world achieved and guaranteed by the work of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the effects of trials is to shrink our perspective, isn't it? Our difficulties and pressures dominate our horizon. And I think what Peter has done today is jackhammered a hole, a great big picture window, through the wall of our small world to reveal a breathtaking view full of light and colour. It's a view of the future in which Jesus is universally revealed to be Lord. Jesus, who is mocked and dismissed, will be vindicated. The one whom we love now and to whom we can trust our lives, we'll see him face to face. He, he opens a picture window to a future in which we are finally and fully saved from the oppression of evil, from sin, from pain, from death itself salvation of our souls in the fullest sense. It's a future filled with glory and honour and praise, a future which makes you joyful just to think about it. This standing firm is so worth it when you know where you're going. If you're not a Christian today, this passage also says something about your future. You see, Jesus will be revealed and he will clean up the mess. You will face him and you will realise that he is Lord and God. His resurrection says that. Are you ready to meet him? Will that day be a time for inexpressible joy or a time of deep regret when you realise that you've actually rejected God's grace towards you and been excluded from a brilliant future? But Peter also challenges us to change our perspective on our present experience of difficulty as well, doesn't he? 
present difficulties themselves play their part in strengthening us and preparing us for that future. They build character. They cut away the superficial trimmings of faith. They build our trust muscles as again and again we find God to be faithful. They refine faith. They change, this passage challenges our perspective as it encourages us to persevere. This also tells us about the grace of God. See, the hope and the joy which the Christian's future brings is grounded not in our efforts or our ability to change our situation to make it better or even our strength, the strength of our belief in this future. It's not grounded in any of those things. It's grounded in the faithful in-history action of God. This is not just an idea that brings this hope. It's a faithful in-action history of God. In-history action of God. He has given Christians new birth through Jesus' resurrection to be children with a brilliant inheritance which he keeps safe for us. By that same resurrection, he's guaranteed a day when Jesus will be revealed as God's king who cleans up the world and finally vindicates his children. It's on the basis grounded in the action of God in history in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a solid foundation on which to build hope. The grace of God. You see, the picture of the future stands on one reality. Stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If there's no resurrection, there is no new birth now. If there's no resurrection, there's no future revelation of Jesus and no inheritance. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. If you're not a Christian here today, here's a place to start in investigating the Christian faith. The in-history action of God in Jesus Christ. It stands or falls on that. You see, you can meet this Jesus as you read the accounts of his life, written by eyewitnesses like Peter. Eyewitnesses who walked and talked with him. You can check the historicity of the documents which claim that he was raised from the dead. Those would be really good first steps to take towards knowing this hope of which God has told us today. But it's also not just about the future, is it? For us Christians, this is a living hope, a, li- a hope which affects life now. In a way that, as I said, the next two talks will fill that out. Please keep coming back. Read ahead. Find out how Peter fills out this living hope, what it looks like in action. Having this future does not does mean that Christians will be different. And from today's passage, it at least means that having this hope enables us to respond differently to life's various trials. It's a great challenge to keep overhauling our default positions in response to trials. Those ones I asked you to think about earlier. It's a challenge to difference. Instead of becoming whingers, controllers or anaesthetizers, we can become hopers who are able to rejoice even in the midst of life's trials. There's a source of joy which no circumstance of life can take away. This is not a kind of grin and bear it, it's not real kind of happy. That's not what he's talking about. It's a joy which enables us to acknowledge the real pain but also entrust ourselves to a faithful God who has acted for our good now and in the future. And when trials do come, because we are Christian, as it did for Peter's readers, where they were maligned, they were accused of being evildoers, they were called to account for their hope. 
we're faced with a choice of how we're going to relate to them. How should we react to those what would Jesus do things in Pony uh, Swa? How should we react to those? How should we react when friends or workmates make you feel like a party pooper because you don't join them in some of their activities? How do you respond to people's anger? Yes, anger at our proclamation of the uniqueness of Jesus. How do you respond? And the temptation is to assert ourselves, to meet anger with anger, ridicule with ridicule, to protect ourselves at all costs because we're missing out. This is uncomfortable. And the realities which Peter expounds for us in this passage enable us to resist that kind of fearful self-defence. It's nearly always counterproductive. We never miss out when we're safely held in the grace of God. Our future is sure and wonderful, whatever they may throw at us. As Peter finishes his letter, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.